This is Packer and Durham on ACCN and Sirius XM Channel 371. All right, let's roll. Uh, Raleigh News and Observer, sports columnist, Luke DeCock joins us in part of his 25-hour stop at his house. I mean, here we go. Ready? We went Raleigh, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Bridgeport, and now back home for a uh, 25-hour stay before off to the Big Easy. Good morning, Mr. DeCock. How are you? Is it morning? Good morning. Yeah, no, 25 <laughs> wonderful hours of laundry and repacking and television interviews with you guys. No, it's it was a lot of fun, actually. I felt better at the end of it than I thought I would, for sure. Um, being able to get out of San Francisco on a direct red eye to Philadelphia honestly made all the difference. And I was able to get into Philly and get a little sleep and get over there. And, and then and then it was planes, trains, and automobiles to Bridgeport and home. But uh, saw three really remarkable games uh, mm. for various reasons. And honestly, the, the NC State-UConn game in Bridgeport was the best game I've seen all March. That was just an absolute epic instant classic under really un- unbelievably adverse conditions for nc state given given what the committee did to them putting them in bridgeport as a number one seed and making them i mean uconn's logo was on the floor for god's right. sake i mean it was yeah. just a travesty in a lot of ways so no I, I feel great looking forward to getting down to new orleans the apocalypse is upon us and uh in five days this will all be over and we can go back to living our normal lives <laughs> now i want to start with the women's game first luke and we're going to get to new orleans and all that stuff and I know NC State fans are bitterly disappointed. I mean, this was a special team mm. Westmore had. I think, like I said, Gino Oriam, I think, said it best after the game because those are two Final Four teams, and he was 100% right. Um, but, you know, and this is not going to help NC State fans, what I'm about to say. But that game, I think, is so important in the big picture of women's basketball because, number one, prime time, the game was not good. It was great. Both teams were out of sight, super plays, incredible drama, 26 lead changes, 18 ties, double overtime. You got a sense that, hey, both of these teams are good enough to win the national title. It's a shame they're playing now. And while NC State fans will you know, obviously lean on, why are we playing in Bridgeport? Why is you? I get all that. But in the big picture of the sport, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened in women's basketball because that should never happen again that a one seed is basically playing a road game at a two seed and and hopefully it's a lesson learned by all and it's a shame that nc state in this particular case had to be the guinea pig but the quality of the game was so good and so riveting that i'm sure there are a lot of people that ah, i don't even watch women's basketball I, channel surfed caught it and put the remote down and went wow that was some kind of basketball game you agree with that yeah, and, and you know the thing about it is when you get down to it, what was you know what was the what were the margins in that game? One, the crowd, no doubt about it. When you have a game that that goes to the final play of regulation, and honestly, State should have won it there, mm-hmm. um, and then goes to an overtime, goes to a second overtime. Yeah, I think a home court advantage matters in that situation. But the other part of it is, you know, Paige Buckers is a, you know arguably one of the the two best players in the country. Uh, three best players in the country. When it comes down to it, has been hurt all year. Made nine straight shots. And at a certain point, you know, the, when you have the best player, that's going to be a huge advantage. But, you know, NC State knew what it was getting into. They weren't happy about it. They thought they could overcome it. I thought Wes Moore had the best line at the end of it where he was getting up from the press conference and said, 
you know, we're supposed to come here next year. I asked Gino, does this count as the home game? Uh, so that kind of lets you know where their emotions really lay in the end. But, you know, it's the end of a three-year cycle for that NC State team. There's some rebuilding to be done. But what those players accomplished in, in not only building that program into a, a national power, but really, depending on how you look at it, restoring NC State's place in the sort of ACC hierarchy going back to the Yao days, um, it's been a long time since NC State was part of that conversation. And Duke yeah. has been and UNC has been, you know, Notre Dame and Louisville come into the league. Uh, NC State, given its history in the game, belongs in that group. And to get back there and and do what they did, the, not, there's, not just this year, but 2020 when they were denied a chance as AC champions to play in the tournament. And 2021, you know, when they had a, a major injury and in losing the Sweet 16, to make it to the Elite Eight for the first time since 98, I, I think does restore some of what NC State should be, even without the Final Four appearance. And everyone will understand why it, why it worked out that way. Luke, I want to um, I want to pivot here real quick to the men's side, and certainly Saturday night in the apocalypse, as you uh, referred to it earlier. Um, but this was the best season ACC women's basketballs ever had. I mean, it moved itself up the meter nationally here. Now staying there becomes that challenge. We've seen the seen the men's side do it for years and years and years, and ward off challenges, and this year recover up the line in in March. Do you get the sense that that product has got some value now as we think of the ACC collectively as a league moving forward? Yeah, I, I do, but I, I think it always has. If you you know you you go back to you know the, the days of, of of Notre Dame, or I'm sorry, of North Carolina winning titles, um, Duke playing for titles, and then Notre Dame and Louisville coming in, as I mentioned earlier. I think it's always been a strong league in women's basketball. Uh, it, one of the better ones. I think what you're seeing now is all of these historically good programs. And, and you know, North Carolina had a great year. Mm-hmm. Duke looked like it was going to have a great year before it, it sort of collapsed. Uh, you're, you're getting these historical programs back on the footing that they've been on at times, but maybe not all at the same time. And who knows what happens if Notre Dame and NC State don't have to play in the Sweet 16. You know, you could have a situation where, you know, Notre Dame's in another region and, and you've got South Carolina, Notre Dame, NC State and Louisville in the final four. I mean, that, that, it's not that far-fetched to think that that could happen. So, uh, you know, can, the, can the, the ACC get a few of those other programs up to that level um, that these sort of historical powers are? I mean, I think that would be the next step. But I think getting all of your sort of, you know, lead teams back to where they should be uh, is, is going to be the best thing because that endures and that, that's not a one-season thing. And I think that's what we're going to see. What we have seen lately with Louisville – uh, with Notre Dame, even with the coaching change, uh, and with NC State lately, it's not a one-season thing. So, so that that should endure. All right, let's uh, fast forward to New Orleans for a second. Um, you haven't been home enough, probably, to get a sense or a vibe on on the temperature. But what do you gather this week of Duke and North Carolina fans in terms of either anticipation, dread? Uh, obviously, everybody's going to be a little nervous, but that, what, what do you think you're going to get on the home front there? Yeah, probably the wrong guy to ask at this point. Um, it's a game nobody wanted to play, and in this particular season, the stakes are so high uh, that it, it really has the the, the, the potential to, to affect the state of this rivalry for, for a long time, almost forever and ever, because if you're, if you're North Carolina and you ruin Krzyzewski's Cameron farewell – and then you end his season a game short of the national championship game. I, I don't. You have bragging rights for all time. 
you know, you, you've 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 defeated Duke in its in its 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 highest leverage moment. And then if you're Duke and you can send Mike Shashevsky out with a title, avenge the Cameron game. No one's going to remember that if they beat Carolina here and do it beating Carolina on your way, whether you beat Villanova or Kansas or not. You know, that's that's the 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 ultimate trump card. Like, hey, look what look what we did under all this pressure in his his farewell tour. So these are the highest stakes. You know, we knew this was going to happen eventually. And because of the state of the programs historically, we knew it was probably going to happen either in a national semifinal or the, or the national title game. But it's, it's, it's been avoided for so long, obviously only narrowly in 1991, that now that it's happening, it's just kind of hard to get your mind around what it's going to be like after this. Whatever the result is, it's going to change these dynamics uh, uh, inevitably and, and, and irretrievably to some degree. So uh, it's, it's crazy that, that, that North Carolina is here. I think that's the amazing part of that, that everyone expected Duke to be here, but what the Tar Heels have done to crash this party is, is amazing. And you've got a last year coach and a first year coach. Um, it's in new Orleans where obviously UNC has history of its own. Uh, there's just, you know, is there anything else we can pile on top of this game? No, there is, there is nothing. Luke, I, I, I'm not going to disagree completely with your comment about the, the damage to the rivalry because I think the coaching change at Duke introduces a new phase of the rivalry. Um, I, look, I, there's no question the winner gets some stake in the ground, flag in the ground in terms of the history of it. And in Duke's case, I, they've got a lot in play here. I mean, Kay's final ride, the whole bit, the – you know, the sixth national championship. Mark mentioned it the other day. I mean, there is a lot for Duke. Hubert Davis, and I'll, I'll use this term with you. I, in some ways, Carolina's playing with house money here a little bit, right? I mean, you just said it. They're not supposed to be here. They're the ones that have moved from early January and actually a mid-February home loss to Pitt to a point where Carolina's on this stage. I've said this, and I said it in November and December. There's a cautionary tale here for Duke fans in the transition from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis, much like what they're getting ready to go through with Mike Krzyzewski to John Shire. I find that next phase of the rivalry to be really fascinating because of Hubert and John in particular being aides on this staff, on the respective staffs for so long. Yeah, and I, I, if I said damage, change is probably – change the foundations is probably a better – way to look at it but I, I i don't know that north carolina is playing with house money at this point when you get this far and you have played this well to get this far i don't think bowing out meekly or, or even in a close game to duke becomes acceptable at that point just because you got here this is the team that we thought north carolina could be in october or november and it took them a while to get there and i think hubert davis deserves a lot of credit for finding that Absolutely. path which was not yeah. always obvious at at points uh, but but you know the the degree to which North Carolina could plant a flag on that win in Cameron, that that becomes forgotten if Duke wins the national title. That becomes a blip on the radar, to use one of Shashevsky's more infamous phrases. And for me, that means North Carolina is not playing with house money. That North Carolina has a lot of skin in this game, and that there are consequences for losing, uh, just as much as there are huge benefits for winning. So. Uh, the other part of what you mentioned, the changing of the guard aspect of this, in fact, I'm writing about that today, is fascinating to me uh, because what does happen now that you have, these, you have these two successors, neither of whom people were really touting in these years of, of all these sort of uh, everyone wants to weigh in on who's going to take over for Roy, who's going to take over for Kay. There weren't a lot of people out there who had their money on Hubert Davis and John Shire. 
but they were both sort of handpicked for this, groomed for this in some ways, uh, and elevated by circumstances. You know, who knows what happens if, if either coach retires in a different year? Uh, there, there was a, a collision of circumstance with some of this. And now these programs are going off in what are, quite frankly, unknown directions. And the past would indicate that they're both going to be just fine. And certainly Davis's first season would indicate that. But we don't really know because college basketball in 22 is, is in so much flux. Uh, and you're talking about, you know, Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams, two titans of the game uh, who have been such constants. And, and we have some evidence that Hubert Davis has pretty good coaching chops. Uh, certainly as a, a coach who can reach and motivate his players, which is, you know, the reason Roy retired was he felt he couldn't do that anymore. You know, Hubert's taken the same team that basically ran Roy out of coaching and taken it to a Final Four. All right, you're allowed to change your mind. Uh, instinctively, <laughs> who wins? Uh, instinctively, I, I think it's Duke, because what I saw from Duke uh, against Michigan State, um, against uh, Arkansas, against Texas Tech, is a team that, has refound its way and understands its mission. The, the the last five minutes against Michigan State were era-defining minutes, mm. the way that Duke was in the situation that really had cost it in every single loss this season, other than the Virginia Tech game. Up in the second half, lose their way, stop playing defense, start missing shots on offense. That That was the scenario that has beaten Duke. And the way that they rallied against a Michigan State team that just could not miss uh, in, in front of a very nervous crowd. And then to take that and prove against Texas Tech, prove against Arkansas, that that was not a fluke, that that was the beginning of something. Uh, and the way that they recovered from the UNC loss and, and the loss in Brooklyn, you know, all three games in Brooklyn were, were bad for Duke. But it's, it's, it looks like a team that has finally figured out how to get the most out of its talent and the most out of it themselves, uh, emotionally, mentally. Um, nothing against North Carolina. I mean, if Caleb Love and R.J. Davis go 12 for 14 from three, that's probably going to be a recipe for victory for Carolina, as it would be for anyone. Uh, and and North Carolina is not going to be intimidated. North Carolina is not going to be, uh, uh, you know, there, there's not going to be any fear there. So so certainly that's not, you know, there's no, no awe. But I just feel like Duke is kind of, kind of got the, the wheels rolling in the right direction in a really, really powerful way. And Paulo Bancaro is playing like the player we all thought he could be, just kind of has those spurts where he takes over a game at, at critical moments and changes the direction of it. All right, Luke, thanks for the time as always. We'll see you there. Safe travels, my man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back on the road. <laughs> all right, Luke DeCock, <laughs> Raleigh News Observer, with us on Packer and Durham. Stay tuned. We'll go to Derby City next. Scott Satterfield standing by. His team goes through a spring practice workout and game on Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock here on ACC Network. We'll talk to the coach of the Cardinals about his spring session next on Packer and Durham. The Packer and Durham Podcast. This is the Packer and Durham Podcast. Well, we're putting the wraps on basketball. We're taking the plastic off football. Spring games two and three this weekend on ACC Network. Friday night, 7 o'clock. Syracuse at the Dome. Dino Babers with some new faces to go with some familiar ones. And then same can be said Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock, Cardinal Stadium. Scott Satterfield's team. You're going to recognize number three at the uh, at the quarterback spot and some other guys too, but there are going to be a few new faces you might want to keep an eye on as well. Spring football is here. 
Boy, this weekend and next weekend, get ready on ACC Network. Oh, there you go. You know what? That's the walk-up music for one coach and one coach only who's answered Brooks and Dunn. And his boys are playing right there on the promo. There you go. this Sunday. A little kicks and Ronnie to get us back in here. All right, yeah. Scott Satterfield joins us from Louisville. Uh, good to see you this morning. Um, has this been a normal spring? Do we finally feel like after all the pandemic and all the kind of mixing and matching, we've, we've gone normal and it feels like we're 100% back in here playing football? I think so. It's been a, it's been a great spring. It's been, um, you know, it does. It goes back to 2019, mm-hmm. in, um, which is a long time ago. It's hard to believe. We, <laughs> we've had a lot of recruits on campus. We've had a lot of, lot of coaches, uh, high school coaches that have come to watch us practice, a lot of alumni, a lot of former players. Um, so, yeah, we've, it's been crowded practices. It um, it's, it's kind of feels, feels normal, which is awesome. So what's been the biggest surprise, Sat, in this spring for you? I mean, because we've got a lot of familiarity with your team, as I said a moment ago. What's been the surprise to you and your staff? Well, I think for us, we've added a few new guys that came in in January. You know, you never know how they're going to be, but, um, man, they've they've been really, really good. I think particularly uh, offensively, that what we brought in, uh, Tyler Hudson that came in from Central Arkansas, wide receiver. I mean, he's been tremendous. Uh, Wiggins coming in from University of Miami has been really good. Tyon Evans came in from Tennessee that's been really good. Um, you know, Momo came in from Ole Miss at linebacker. He, he, he's, man, what a great leader he is, vocal leader. He brings a ton of experience. Um, so these guys that we've brought in for us that are new names and new faces for us um, that are really going to be great players and, and great addition. I mean, it's kind of, you know, we've talked about how, how this portal has impacted the game and it, and it has for so many teams and it will for us um, as we head into the fall. Coach, I tell you what, Sunday could be a pretty big day up there in the Commonwealth now. We get a little football, and then it could lead in right into a, maybe a national championship for the ladies. That'd be a pretty nice yeah. day in Louisville, wouldn't it? That'd be unbelievable. They, they're playing great. What a, what a great game the other night, uh, being able to watch them play. Um, you know, it's, it's fun. It's awesome. And, uh, of course, they play on Friday. Um, <laughs> Got to get by South Carolina first before we can get to Sunday, but uh, it should be a great game on Friday. Um, it's easy to start offensively with Malik. Um, but I know when we talked to you, like right after the season had ended in January or February, you were talking about things you were having him work on individually. How much was he able to process that with you and, uh, and kind of the change you're looking, uh, things you want him to do? How, how does he respond yeah. now in spring with some of the stuff individually you wanted him to bring to the table? You know, he's, he's continued to mature and continue to grow up. I mean, that's, you know, again, the COVID year, extra year he's been able to get. He's going to take advantage of that. And he's been tremendous. It's been his best year, obviously, leadership-wise for us. And, and then him just working on his game. He, he's not sat out at all this spring and, and gotten as many reps as he can possibly get. He wants them. Um, the thing that he's really worked on is really working the pocket, staying in the pocket, and not, not getting out and running as early and often as we all know he can and he likes to do. I mean, it was – you know, I told him, hey, listen, just find somebody to throw it to. Don't, don't take off running. And, you know, we've had some scrimmages and that, that type of thing where, you know, at the very last minute he'll take off and run. I mean, you can still see that. But um, he's done a great job of just sitting in there, throwing the ball, checking it down to the running back or underneath routes. And I think that's going to, you know, help his game and take it to another level. We, we have some great skill players around him that he can get the ball to where he doesn't have to do it all with his legs. And I think that'll, that'll make him a better player. It's going to make us a better offense. Coach, um... Georgia Tech had their spring game a couple of weeks ago, believe it or not. And 
you know, Collins comes on here talking about a beer garden in the end zone. Um, you didn't take my advice about pushing this spring game back, uh, leading into the Kentucky Derby. That's all fine. I'm not going to hold that against you. Uh, so what can fans expect when they show up on Sunday or at least putting their feet up watching? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be fun, exciting. Um, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to do it more like a, a, a scrimmage, but a big scrimmage. Hopefully we'll have, you know, 80, 90 plays that we'll be able to run. It'll be some, some fun scenarios. We're also going to do some things in the kicking game, special team-wise, where you work drills and, and try to have some fun with that. You know, I, you know hopefully the, the, the fans that will be there will have some fun and get to see maybe get to see some things out of the ordinary. We love to, you know, allow maybe try to get some O-linemen to catch punts and some, maybe do some kicking. I mean, just some fun stuff um, where they normally don't do get to do. But, but I think you're also just going to get to see some of the newcomers that I, I just mentioned earlier. Um, you're going to see some playmaking ability out, out of the guys that have continued to mature and to grow, like Tyler Harrell and mm. um, Amari Huggins-Bruce. I mean, some of these, some of these guys that, that, that were around. But um, – but, you know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting, and uh, hopefully the weather will be great, and um, it'll be a great afternoon on Sunday. Can I ask you about your situation at running back? You just mentioned Tyon Evans a moment ago, who obviously transferred in from Tennessee. Jalen Mitchell, uh, Travion Cooley we saw a lot of last year too. you got a good problem there, it feels like. Yeah, and Jawar Jordan, who, who had a yeah. 100-yard kickoff return again in the bowl game, uh, he's, he's had a great spring. Uh, you really all four guys. I mean, I – I feel really good. I mean, if, if any one of those four were our starting running back against Syracuse in our first game, I would not have one problem with it. That's how productive all four have been. And they all bring a little bit something different to the table. I think Cooley, I mentioned this the other day, last week, that he maybe is more improved than anybody on our team mm -hmm. um, coming in from the last fall. Just He was young, freshman last year, and he's really grown up in this offseason. And I really got a better understanding of what we're doing offensively. But all four guys um, have a lot of talent and, and have done a lot, of, a lot of things for us this spring. And, you know, Mitchell's the guy who started most every game last right. year. And, and then you're bringing in the talent that we've been able to bring in with Tyon Evans that was one of the leading rushers at Tennessee. And, you know, he's a solid back. He's about 212 pounds, and he, he can go as well. So, yeah, we, we're, we're fortunate right there and loaded, um, you know, in the running back position. All right. Uh, Lance Taylor comes in from Notre Dame, kind of as the offensive coordinator. A lot of familiarity in the offensive line. I mean, Renato Brown returns for like his 55th year playing football at the University of Louisville. Um, but you got a lot of guys like that. So yeah. how those conversations been once you get into the spring with Lance about philosophically the strengths and weaknesses? And what does he, you know, talk to you and you're like, hey, okay, there's a different way to look at something that maybe we've done it one way for years. Now we're going to do something different. Yeah, you know, Lance has been awesome. He's been great for me, um, just taking a little bit off my plate offensively. I mean, he's, you know, very organized uh, person. Um, he's great with our staff, our offensive staff, and then also the unit meetings. Um, you know, we've had a lot more where we take the whole offense and meet together, and, and he's headed all that up. And he's been outstanding with all of that. And, you know, he's brought some different ideas to a practice approach and that, that have been really good for us. Um, attention to detail has been great. And, you know, and he's kind of just looked at our – personnel and kind of saying, you know, any suggestions that we may have and moving guys around, that type of thing. But, um, you know, we mentioned the offensive line, really excited. Maybe it's more excited about them as any other position we have. You know, I, I feel good about nine guys, and that's, that's unusual to have nine guys that can go out and play for you in, in a fall. So, um, you know, we're going through the spring right now, and, you know, Caleb Chandler's really – he had, had off-season surgery. He's not even going. He's a first-team All-ACC guard. Mm -hmm. and. You know, we really hadn't missed a beat up front. You know, we'll get him back and, and, and get some more of these guys back up front. I mean, I'm excited about those, the, the guys up front. I, and Coach Cardwell, we hired as a tight end coach, but now he's taking over the offensive line. And, 
and done a tremendous job. He knows our offense inside and out. And so there's zero learning curve for him to come in. He brings a lot of passion and energy uh, for those guys up front. So it's been, it's been fun to see and sit back and watch as, as, a, as the head coach, but also as the offensive guy. You know, I just I love seeing the, what we have in the making uh, on that side of the ball. Coach, I, I know you probably aren't going to hate this question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyhow. <laughs> You know, and you don't worry about noise or hype, and that, that's for us idiots in the media. Uh, but I look at the Atlantic Division mm-hmm. in the ACC from 22, and, and Clemson's Clemson, right? You know, they do their thing. Yep. Wake's got yeah. everybody and their brother back. Dave Clawson, of course, what he did last year winning the division. Dave Doran's got a 1,000 guys back. NC State, I've seen him in as high as the top 10. Those are three. And, and then, you know, I love what Halfley's doing at B.C., Sounds like you are loaded and just waiting in the weeds. Norvell's doing his thing in Florida State. I mean, the Atlantic Division of the ACC, mm-hmm. uh, and I know you'll have the national narrative of nobody who pays attention to the conference. It's Clemson, everybody else, which is just <laughs> stupid. But I really sense that the Atlantic <clears throat> Division this upcoming season has a chance to be filthy good. I mean, yeah. really incredibly competitive. Yeah, I, I agree. You, you mentioned you start mentioning those teams, and you're like, "Well, that's true." Yeah, well, wow. I mean, there's a lot of lot of good players coming back on that on the, our side, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, because we're, we're sitting in that side, and and there's a lot of good players and a lot of good coaches. Uh, you know, you, you start thinking. I mean, NC State will be as talented as any team out there. You know, with a ton of experience and won a lot of games last year. You know, for us, fortunately, NC State comes to, to comes to Louisville. Uh, Wake Forest comes here. You know, we do have to go down to Clemson, we, which we played them down to the wire last year, which I think gave our uh, you know, our club a lot of confidence. Um, you know, yeah, BC is a, a great program. You know, it, it's 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 interesting. You know, Florida State is a good program. They're coming up here as well. We play them early, uh, third game, and so. So yeah, well, you, you, it's it's going to be fun to watch, and um, you know I feel like we got just as good a team as any of those those teams you just mentioned. We'll be right there, and then really it's going to come down to who's going to show up on those on those days you play. Um, you know who's the most hungry, and who's got a great plan, and who's going to show up to to go out and win that day. But it's going to be very very competitive, particularly in our side of the of the conference. And you know, and it really starts week one at Syracuse, and you know how crazy the yeah. dome can get. And Dino's got his spring game coming up on Friday, and. You know, everybody wants to jump out of the gate ASAP. So, like I said, I I think the Atlantic Division in particular could be one of those pleasant surprises from a national perspective when we kick off the 22 season. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, to start the season with a conference game, you mentioned we have to go to the Dome. We have not been to Syracuse. They, the last three years, they've come to Louisville, and which is crazy, you know. And now we're having to go there for the first time. When, you know, I know it's going to be a zoo in there. A lot of lot of hype, and you know. I've heard a lot of things about that dome. We'll, we'll hopefully be ready to roll and be ready to go play a great grant game and make sure Dino turns that a- AC on in there um, <laughs> and not not so it's too hot. But uh, but yeah, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, guys going in there now know they got AC. Y'all will ride that one all the way out on him, aren't you? Poor Babers used to have the built-in advantage. You go in there, it's like a sauna in September when you go play road games up there. Now all of a sudden, no, 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 they got the air. We can flip that on. We can get the air moving around in there. Hey, by the way, Coach, uh, your appearance today now ties you with Leonard Hamilton as the leader in the clubhouse wow. at 13. So congratulations on that. 13. Wow, that's incredible. Oh, by the way, I did get my mug that you guys sent last week, which is awesome. The only thing that I was disappointed, you guys didn't sign it. I'd really like to have your signatures no, on no, the it mug. Devalues it. No, no, no. no, no it no, devalues no, the mug. No, excuse, excuse me. Who do you think you are? You know, you got to get to 20 <laughs> before we sign it. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, 
Hey, old boy from Hillsboro, uh, you kind of interested in Saturday night in New Orleans a little bit? You you kind of got a little stake in the ground on that one, don't you? Yeah, I do. I you know I grew up in Durham. In seventh grade, we moved to Orange County over to Hillsboro. <laughs> so really, right in between both schools, I had no idea they have not they have not met in the tournament in the March yeah. Madness tournament. That, that's incredible. And uh, you know, I was born in '72, and I think Coach K got to Durham in maybe '79 or '78 or '9, and it's crazy. So about my whole life has been watching Coach K coach basketball at Duke, and now this is the last hurrah. So I'm yeah. um, looking forward to seeing this. Yeah, it'll be fun. Hey, good to see you. Be well, okay? Yep. Great to see you guys. Take care. Thanks. Scott Satterfield, head coach at Louisville. Card spring game, 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon. Right Could here be a on ACC big Network. day for Louisville, though. Football, oh, maybe yeah. a national championship game for the ladies that night. It'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, turn this break around real quick when we come back. If you missed our visit with Roy Williams yesterday – yeah, you can count on that quarter zip Peter Millar striped sweater Saturday night in New Orleans. You can count on that. You know why? That right there is 2-0. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be back. Roy from yesterday on his porch on Packer and Durham. Packer and Durham. Here's Mark Packer and Wes Durham. Trust him. He is getting ready for Friday night. His yeah, girl, hey, Haley man. Van Lith yeah. and Louisville uh-huh. Cards taking on South Carolina. That's Chester right. will be dialed in for that game yes. Friday night. Yes, he will. Uh, welcome back. Uh, Trey Cunningham coming up in a few minutes. The national champion indoors at 60 meters in the hurdles. Tell you, dude can fly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to Trey from Florida State. Uh, in case you missed our visit yesterday on the porch with Olroy, here we go. Uh, Coach Williams joined us. Very relaxed, I thought, didn't you? I thought Coach looked great. Yeah, he was on his way to hit a small bucket of balls, I think, that afternoon. Uh, we asked him how much fun's it been to watch Carolina make this run. And now, you know, what do you think kind of is going to happen when you get to the Final Four? You and I both know there were a lot of naysayers out there snipping here and snipping there. The good news for me is I never looked at social media. The one reason why I can't get on it, but uh, uh, never look at that stuff. But I knew it was out there. My buddies would say something, and I know that Hubert, same thing. He wasn't paying attention, but his people would say something. And, you know, so after that, you know, it, it, just watching the games and seeing our team get better and better all year long was really a lot of fun. And, uh, during the games, I'm more nervous than I ever was in any game I ever coached. i tell you the funniest thing, and I don't want to talk your whole show, but seriously, for 33 years, most of the games, I would never look at the score in the first half. I wanted to decide how we were playing because what I thought, not just looking to score. You know, the other team may bank one in, and you play great defense, or you run a great play, and they just missed the layup or whatever. So I would never look at the score until I'd walk off the floor at the Smith Center and then look up at the clock right up above the tunnel. And uh, uh, now Caleb's got the ball, and I look at the score, and he passes RJ, and I look at the score again. Not even a damn shot's been taken. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, look, I look at the score every single possession. You know, it doesn't change when nobody the basket doesn't go in. And I'll look at it again as the team starts going down. But uh, – it's a lot more nervous for me, and it, uh, during the course of the game, I don't know that I was never nervous a single time in a basketball game. I was just trying to uh, decide what was next. Uh, but sitting there in the stands, oh, my gosh, it's a different deal, boy. 
can I tell you that there uh, there used to be a radio announcer who did your games retired in 2011 and his first year sitting in the seats he didn't like it very much either he he said it was a lot different and, and a little bit more uncomfortable to be honest with you well I don't know that I would say it's uncomfortable because you know it's uh, I enjoy making our runs and when they're the other teams making their runs I uh, I just try to say okay we've got to do this better we got to do that better but uh, no to me I'm always in the games when I coast, I never thought about the outcome. And, you know, it's about you guys have heard golfers talk. They, they think about the routine, their, whatever their key is in their swing. And during the basketball games when I was coaching, it was always next play. But during the sitting in the stands, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we're down five and there's uh, 44 minutes left in a 40-minute game. <laughs> but I'm still nervous about the dadgum game, the outcome. And uh, I never thought about the outcome when I was coaching. Listen, you're down in Charleston, South Carolina, which is one of the great cities in America. You're going to go hit balls later this afternoon. You're talking about getting nervous. I can only imagine what you're going to be going through on Saturday when your good buddy Jay Wright's in the Final Four, your relationship with the University of Kansas and what it means to college basketball, uh, your ties to the University of North Carolina and upset, and, and the relationship you've got with Duke because yeah. you've been part of the incredible mm-hmm. tradition and history you know, I kid around the other day that this Final Four is my kind of Final Four, but Roy, quite frankly, this is your kind of Final Four. The Blue Bloods are here, aren't they, boys? <laughs> yeah, you got no doubt. You know, there, there's no somebody looking for a magic slipper. It's, uh, you know, I hate it for Jay. God almighty, the more kid getting hurt. And, you know, how can you have anything worse than that? That's the, that's the biggest negative of the whole thing is that kid has been a big-time player. I loved him when he was in high school many years ago. And to tear his Achilles, as soon as he went down, I'm sitting there watching the game with my two oldest grandsons, and I said, I think he just tore his Achilles. And so that's the sad thing. But other than that, it's just a, a really high, high quality, high level. And, you know, you got a one and you got a two. And I get, uh, was Villanova a four or what was Villanova? Two. 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 A two. two. She got one, two, two, uh, eight, and I happen to think we're playing better than anybody, but still got to play on game day. Um, the Carolina Duke event on Saturday night, I mean, for all the years you've seen this, is it unique and is the key to keep it normal and make it just like a normal Carolina Duke game if such a thing exists? <laughs> well, I think it's a heck of a lot more normal than the last game was over at Cameron. That was the one that was the, the event. Uh, but I think this is Final Four, and you can forget about who's coaching, who's leaving coaching, who used to coach, who was a coach 500 years ago, play the freaking game. And so to me, this one's more normal. And, you know, the fact that it's at the Final Four, uh, you know, I know some people say, God, I wish it was so on Monday night. Well, my God, so does Mike and Hubert do wish it was on Monday <laughs> night too. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is it's, it's a big-time game. First time I was ever in the Final Four. Uh, yeah. 1991, uh, we played North Carolina, and I thought that was a big-time game. I was coaching at Kansas, but the other game was uh, Vegas and uh, uh, Duke, and everybody acted like that was for the Dagum National Championship. A general basketball fan, if you ask who won the national championship in 91, they'll say Duke, that Duke won, they beat Vegas. And that really ticks me off because, by God, we were in the game, you know, but all the attention was uh, on the Duke uh, Vegas game. And Mike did maybe one of his best jobs he's ever done by not letting the kids get too overwhelmed because Vegas had beaten them like 30 the year before. 
and he didn't let them get too overwhelmed about revenge or that game, and we just beat them. And he said, hey, we got to play again on Monday night. And uh, even the other day, I Seth Reese and, and Huggy were on the air, and they talked about the first game the, when Duke won their first national championship. And I forget who said it. it did, but it said when Duke won the first national championship, they didn't have the best talent, but they had him. Well, that ticked me off because, God Almighty, they had Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill and Christian Leitner, and you guys, no basketball. You won't be able to name three starters for my Kansas team, and only one of them ever got drafted. So when he won his first national championship, he did have more talent than the other team. The key for a North Carolina win Uh-oh. against Duke, I'll let you put your coaching hat on now, it is what <laughs> Saturday? Oh, it's easy. Ball's got to go in the dadgum basket. <laughs> no, I get that part. I, I, that's he. Hey, you know, now I know you're on the front porch. <laughs> that's right. Hey, just think of this terms right here. The ball always looks better. I mean, everything looks better when that ball goes in the basket. But, all right, they kicked our tails the first game. In the second game, we kicked their tails. And they were so emotional, I thought it was just off the charts. But I would have loved to have coached that game at Cameron because nobody – except for Roy Williams thought North Carolina was going to win the game. And I'm serious. Nobody thought they were. But I really thought we had a great chance. And if I were a betting man, I would have bet on North Carolina because all the pressure was on Duke. Now it's going to be about a basketball game. How fun was that visit? Uh, I'd say, you know, he was Is that the first time we've had him on since he retired? I think yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> We could have spent hours. He wouldn't have, but we could have spent yeah. hours with Coach. Yes, he was relaxed, and it's great to see him, and it sounds like he's doing well. And oh, yeah. I know he's excited for knowing Huber, but, I, I, you know, as much as he loves college basketball, mm-hmm. and I was kidding around about, hey, it really is your kind of Final Four. It really is. I mean, it's it's going to be out of sight Saturday. I um, talked to a friend yesterday who told me that I was asking – I was trying to find out about former players from both schools. I'm really curious as to the – march on new orleans of former players and i'm hearing this is becoming a bigger issue than as you can imagine than anybody ever thought because the final four in new orleans in a building this size the ticket allotment the four blue bloods that you're talking about it just has created a massive ticket rush so I know flying into New Orleans is in a piece of cake. Yeah, that's not easy. That's either. a whole separate uh, issue. When we come back, maybe we could just have Trey Cunningham sprint to New Orleans Ooh. for us. The national champion at 60 meters in the hurdles will join us next. <laughs> come on, Pac. I swear, I'm, the dude doesn't, his feet do not hit the ground when he runs. It's amazing. <laughs> We're going to talk to Trey Cunningham ahead of the power hour next on Packer and Durham. The Packer and Durham Podcast. This is the Packer and Durham Podcast. Packer and Durham. All right, we're going to switch gears. We're going to give you a little football. Switch gears. Williams. Switch gears. And now nice. we're taking it to fifth gear. <laughs> going to talk a little All track right, and field. You can go ahead. I, I, listen, I told you, I'm in awe of track go and ahead, field. Go ahead. Let's athletes. go. All right. Trey Cunningham makes his debut uh, on the program from Florida State. I swear. <laughs> Trey, first of all, welcome to the show. I mentioned earlier today on the show that – I I think a real contest with you running the 60 meters in hurdles and me eating a Krispy Kreme donut. Do you get to the finish line before I finish? I think that would be an incredible contest. I mean, dude, I love watching you run. Congratulations on all your success. Thanks. Thank you. 
I mean, do you think you can finish the donut in 7.3 seconds? I, I do. I, I, mean, I think <laughs> okay. maybe, the, maybe, the better, maybe the better question is, could I do two by the time you do 60 meters? Uh, I, that would really be close. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I just tell him, Wes, um, really the first gig I ever had was in college. I was in Caracas, Venezuela, doing the Pan Am games, and my assignment was track and field. It was really the first time that I saw world-class athletes go that fast. And I saw your deal here, and I was like, man, I wish I could run like that. Uh, and I'm in <laughs> awe of what you do. So with that said, when did you know you had some quicks? What age did you know, hey, you know what? I mean, I blow by people. I mean – I was always one of the faster kids on the playground. Uh, I mean, I would say like the speed actually kicked in in high school when a lovely thing called puberty hit. So I got some muscles and was able to go fast. Hmm. Uh, take me through this 7.38, the 11th fastest time in the history of the event. You're the indoor champion. Um, I mean, we all know the hurdles are – there is a specificity to it, right? I mean, you got to hit certain things at certain times. So when do you know that it's going well? Is it the start? Is it – you know, I've had guys tell me between two and three, you know. I mean, how does it work for Trey Cunningham? So I know it's going well when I don't feel like I'm running fast. I mean, it's kind of funny to say, but I'll be in the race and I don't know how fast I'm going. That's why most of the time when – I hit the wall or the mat and I turn around. That's why I have like a reaction because I don't know how fast I ran. But at the same time during the race, I know the rhythm as well, like in between the hurdles. So I know something nice is going to happen. Trey, who's the fastest guy you've ever seen? Fastest guy I've ever seen. And you may say, hey, you're, you're talking you're to him. To it. You're looking at you, him. You That's the fastest that guy I've ever but, seen but who's myself. A, who, who's a guy or a woman? <laughs> it could be a woman in track and field that you go, my goodness, can they um, run? I don't know. Abby Steiner's done some crazy things this year at Kentucky. Like, it's all-time times, like, even faster than my all-time times. So it's very impressive to watch. Uh, mm. I mean, I've – been friends with Sydney McLaughlin for a few years. I mean, she's breaking world records in the hurdles. I mean, even the guys in the hurdles, I have a good rapport with Aries Merritt. Like, he's a world record holder. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just speed everywhere. Hmm. Is, is there a sense of intimidation in, in a 60-meter hurdle? Like, when, when everybody knows you got, I mean, hey, we know Cunningham. I mean, is there like an unwritten word? in track and field, especially when it comes to speed, that you don't have to say anything? Is there an aura amongst people? I mean, you tell me. I mean, you live in it. So I would say the elite of the elite, there's a definite presence when they step on the line. So it's kind of nonchalant until the blocks get put down. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because they know, like, they're going to do what they got to do to win. And, I mean, that's all that matters because you're the only one that's in your lane unless you fall and then interfere with somebody else like they did just there. But, <laughs> you know, yeah, that was – it's just the elite of the elite that have that presence, and it's pretty awesome to, like, get to compete with people like that and see what they do. All right. We just – we've watched a couple different times the the 60 meters for the national championship here. Um, and I'm, I'm sitting watching kind of where you pick up speed. 
How do you think this race went? Was this the perfect race for you? I mean, it is, you know, the 11th oh, fastest no. time all time, right? Yeah, it's it was pretty quick uh, historically, but it wasn't my best race. I mean, as you see right there, I got left in the blocks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I'm like in between the hurdles much better than most people on the planet. So that's where you can see where I pick up speed and that's the big thing about the outdoor race. There's five more hurdles that you have to get over. So yeah. that's where I really pick up towards the end of the 60 and like the middle of the outdoor 110s. Mm -hmm. Trey, I'm glad you said that because when I was watching the race, I, if I was on the block, I'd have had you after a foot. Stop it. After a foot. Just stop. First step, I'd have had <laughs> Trey would have been in the rear view mirror after the first step. Yeah. You were slow hey, out of third. Fine. Third step, he'd have been by you, though. Oh, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, I've been over after Great. the third step. Yeah. But the first step, I might have <laughs> said rear view mirror to Trey Cunningham. One step. It's about A to B, not A to A. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Hey, uh, I thought you said there was no trash talking in traffic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, all right. So I, I'm, I'm more curious about the process between the hurdles and, and the fine-tuning that goes on between the hurdles because, to me, in the times that I've been around – exceptional hurdlers and you're the best I've ever talked to but the step process between the hurdles is something that it, are you constantly trying to fine-tune that part of it or is it at the front or the back of the of the race I would say the middle like in between the hurdles is the biggest part because so in a sprint you can open up or hit your full stride. In hurdles, the faster you go, the shorter your strides have to be because you only have a limited amount of space. So if you want to break a world record, you have to go on a stride pattern that's never been done before. Hmm. And it's quite possibly almost impossible to hit because the cadence of it is just insane. Uh, but at the same time, you have to be a really good sprinter. Not many people realize that that aren't in like elite track and field they think you just have to have perfect form over the hurdle and have quick feet and be flexible that couldn't be further from the truth you still have to be a elite sprinter like i would say most of the hurdlers can run the four by one by the way when, when you go and run i mean forget the hurdles all right because that's your expertise but when you decide hey you know what i'm gonna go out for a jog what what, what is that for you i mean do you, hey, i'm gonna go do five miles i'm gonna go I mean, you tell me, this is your universe. Well, what do you do for a run? Well, I just don't go for a run. I run for 13 seconds and go sit my happy butt down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you, it's starting to sound like my kind of deal here. Because, I mean, yeah. I, I, Trey, I'm in awe of the track and fielders. I am. It's a 13 seconds full speed call today. That sounds like I could sign up for that, even though I wouldn't be going too fast. And I think that's the thing like people really don't realize it's 110% of your effort. Like it's not like a ball sport where you get a 75% effort, like one minute break or something like that. So I think that's what people don't realize, like why it's so hard for us to double back and stuff at times. But I mean, back to going to a jog, I mean, my jog is the warm up lap and then uh, the furthest I'll run will be like 300, 350 meters. So how about that? It's not far in relative terms, but it's far with the speed I'm bringing at it. Well, I tell you what, you, uh, it's a joy watching you run, man. Seriously. And, and when we saw you break the record, I said to Wes, we got to get traded. We got to get this dude on the show because <laughs> his feet don't even hit the ground when he's running. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. 
this is a, this is a question that we've asked every student athlete that makes their debut in the show. Uh, since you've been okay. in Florida State, what has been your hardest class? Oh, my hardest class. Um, let's see. That's a hard one. Uh, I actually enjoy going to school. Uh, so, like, I just started my master's program last semester, uh, and it's going pretty well. But I would say either statistics or my philosophy class I had my mm. second semester. It was difficult for me for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Seven seconds, was That's, That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Seven. Yeah. You know, you, you just said to Trey that he's the best hurdler you've ever talked to. I, yeah. I'd be your second one, right? I'd be number two. No, Ronaldo Nehemiah would be the – He'd be two. Yeah, yeah. Ronaldo yeah. Nehemiah. Right. Back in the day, that was way before Trey was on the earth. Yeah. Ronaldo <laughs> Nehemiah. Well, listen, best of luck, man. Love having you on the show. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Trey Cunningham of Florida State, national champion at 60 meters indoors. 7.38. Yeah, that's it. Man, I love it. Uh, Power Hour features Felicia Leggett-Jack, the new women's basketball coach at Syracuse, and North Carolina Athletic Director Bubba Cunningham. And perhaps Drew Brooks hosts fill-in-the-blank. Oh, we got a little game show today. Perhaps. Perhaps. We got we'll enough see. time? Yeah. Uh, and the most surprising ACC national champion in basketball. Oh, roll it back to 91. Look at Thomas Hill, spot-up jumper. Bobby Hurley feeding Grant Hill on Anderson Hunt. And young Coach K. Back after this, Packer and Durham on ACC Network. Packer and Durham.